Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is December 18th, 2022. Welcome to a full edition of Canadian Common Sense, Canada's Issues in Under an Hour. It is Tony in Saskatchewan, flying solo today. Lewis is away. Weather update, it is minus 25 degrees Celsius in beautiful Saskatoon, Saskatchewan today. Where Lewis and his family are on a warm holiday, it is currently plus 25 degrees. So, Lewis, I know you are listening. Bite me. Two middle fingers for you. And yes, I know you'll rub that in later. So, that's why those fingers are high in the air. Just for you, buddy. All right. <clears throat> so, it's going to be a kind of a... A lot of little snippets in the show today. Parliament has now shut down for the year. And while most political shows and podcasts are also shutting down until mid-January when politics gets going again, it might even be later in January, Canadian Common Sense is here for you. We will keep going through. Um, on a programming note, there will be no show next weekend, as that is going to be Christmas Day. You can expect a our annual year in review show on likely around January 1st, or at least uh, within the next couple of weeks at any rate. So we will recap, as we do every year, we'll recap what we consider to be some of the, the biggest stories that we had covered, and we will bring you those shows. All right. On the show today, a couple of updates. Calgary City Council going insane. Governments freezing their own pay. Federal governments tell their, their staff, get back to work. Skate Canada goes woke. Healthcare continues to fall apart. And more. Okay, so I'm going to start with just a couple of updates on some of the issues that are near and dear to mine and Lewis's hearts. And I know that I said last week, I eventually have to stop talking about MAID because MAID just ticks me off. And I'm sure that many of you are tired of listening to me talk about MAID. Oh, well, except for those of you who agree with my positions, I guess. But anyway, very quick update on MAID. I won't call it a win, because to me, the only win on made right now is to scrap the whole thing and if they want to start again, do it with some common sense, which our government, you know, has a complete lack of. David Lametti, health minister, as I mentioned on last week's show, had said, no, no, we're going full steam ahead to uh, the March 17th deadline to get mental health Ill illness in as a qualification for made. Well, so suddenly, David Lametti has a change of heart after, as we said on this show, the Canadian Psychiatric Association put out a statement saying, we really need to look at delaying this. And, well, people like myself and other commentators also said, this is insane. Well, speaking of mental illness, that was no pun intended. Um, that it is insane to push ahead with this when made is so fraught with problems as it is and we've been highlighting those problems for you offering made for well such things as 
poverty or as you're costing the system too much money. Um, yeah, we need to put the brakes on this. And now the government has listened to you because they finally decided that, well, I know that just last week we said full steam ahead. Now David Lametti suddenly has done a full 180, suddenly has decided that, well, we need to ask for a delay in implementing mental illness as part of the made legislation. So great. I'm actually I'm actually all in favor and completely support Mr. Lametti's decision to to make that ask. Now I don't know I why they have to act. I guess because the legislation is written out in that, you know, the next phase will be March seventeenth. So I'm not certain if more legislation is required or how they go about making that change, but as always, we will keep you posted on how it goes. So, honestly, a big thank you to the uh, to the government for actually listening to you and understanding that there are problems with this garbage legislation, and at the very least, they're going to try to delay euthanizing Canadians who have anorexia and euthanizing Canadians who are depressed. It's an awful slippery slope to go down. So I'm really, really glad that they've, they've done the 180. They've realized how dumb this legislation actually is. Okay, no, they haven't. But at the very least, we got a delay. So congratulations, Canada. All those of you who uh, spoke up, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. All right, second update on our other most popular topic that we discuss on this show. That would be Bill C-21, the the, uh, the Firearms Confiscation Act. I don't know what it's actually called, and I don't care because it's all about confiscating firearms. Well, it's... Well, they, got, they shut down the the debate on the bill, so it's off to the, to the Senate, I believe. Because, yeah, it was actually... It's off to the Senate now, but... At least some provinces are, are standing back, fighting back, I should say. We discussed on the show already, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, New Brunswick, Yukon have all joined in and said, no, we are not going to be enforcing this bill. I suspect the Northwest Territories will be not too far behind because the, the MP for the Northwest Territory and the MP for Yukon have both said they will not be supporting this bill. Alberta takes the lead again, and the Alberta Justice Minister, Tyler Shandro, made a statement that, well, Alberta is actually taking over prosecution of firearms offenses from the federal government. And they said, well, we can do that because even though they are federal offenses, technically, they are provincial prosecutors paid by the government of Alberta who are actually prosecuting these federal offenses. So the Alberta government says, we are just going to take over all of the prosecutions for this new Bill C-21, and we are going to tell our prosecutors not to prosecute any firearms owners who have had firearms that are on Trudeau's ban list before the 2020 order in council. Okay, what does that mean in English? That means that any firearms owner who who owned any of the scary guns that uh, Justin Trudeau wanted banned since 
2020 when he brought in the sweeping gun ban allegedly in response to the Nova Scotia shooting. Anybody who has those firearms that they owned before this 2020 order in council will not face any prosecution in Alberta. So that makes me wish I was back in my home in native Alberta for that reason. But it's a good step forward. And I suspect that now that Alberta's done this, I imagine Saskatchewan will, will, will follow suit. Scott Moe tends to be a follower more so than a leader. And I'm okay with that as long as he's following something that actually makes sense. And this does. So great. Thank you, Alberta, for leading the way. So we will see how that goes. I can't wait, actually. I'm sure that they're going to get pushback for the federal government on it. But I'm also sure that they've done their homework. And it's absolutely true. It is, you know, province of Alberta prosecutors who go to court for these cases. And, you know, the prisoners or people who are convicted would serve time in Alberta government jails, for example. So, yeah, I think the Alberta government's actually onto something here. So let's hope that keeps going. All right. Now, those updates done and out of the way. We're only nine minutes in, so fantastic. Didn't take too much of your time with that. Let's go to the city of Calgary, shall we? Now, Mayor Jody Gondek, who was elected last year, immediately proclaimed a climate emergency in Calgary. And I, uh, for those of you who don't live in Calgary, Calgary is where Leonardo DiCaprio was filming a movie a number of years back and experienced a Chinook. We've talked about this on the show before. Those of you who haven't experienced a Chinook in Calgary, it literally will go from 15, 20 below zero to 15 to 20 degrees above zero in an afternoon. And it's it's a great phenomena. It actually happens a couple of times a winter, really. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but it happens a lot in Calgary. They uh, We used to joke about that they never bothered to uh, have snow clearing in Calgary because they would just wait for a Chinook to blow in and melt it all. And that does happen. And that was where Leo DiCaprio experienced climate change right before his very eyes. It was a Chinook. All right. Anyway, Chinooks are not climate change, but perhaps Mayor Jody Gondek wants to jump aboard the Leo DiCaprio train. Anyway, the City of Calgary Council has decided that they want to put forward a ban on election signs. Now, it's not a complete ban. It's going to be a limit on election signs. And their rationale behind limiting these election signs is, yes, you did guess it, it is the environment. They are worried that these signs are single-use plastics because many election signs are made from that corrugated plastic, coroplast, what they call it. And not only are they bad for the environment, but they are unsightly. Now, there's an organization called Common Sense Calgary. I love the name. I didn't know they existed until I read this story, but Common Sense Calgary has basically called BS on the the city council and said election signs, especially for people running for a municipal office, are 
the only way or one of the best ways they can get their names out there. So what you're doing by limiting election signs is you are guaranteeing that incumbents are going to continue to get in because they, of course, are using taxpayer dollars to mail out whatever information they wish to mail out to all of their constituents. So their name is constantly floating in the public space. So there's that, that it's a little unfair. And does this remind anybody of the city of Brampton attempting to do the same thing not long ago, banning all election signs altogether because they're unsightly? And again, all you're doing is make certain that incumbents are always going to win. So it's, uh, I think it's much more of a political move than it is a move for the environment. I mean, after all, this is Calgary. This is the city where they actually impose fines on businesses, like restaurants, for example, if they just happen to give a customer plastic cutlery and the customer did not ask for it. That's actually a $250 fine in Calgary now. Yep, yeah, 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 you uh, you heard that right. Because that's part of their climate emergency, I guess. <laughs> Single-use plastics, I tell you. And... Danielle Smith was right to call call them out for say for uh, when she was cursing the paper straws and saying that yeah we we haven't really saved the environment with paper straws they got to be the biggest annoyance in the world but anyway I'm reminded of when I hear of this especially when they talk about these signs being distracting in Calgary's case in my own city of Saskatoon I want to say about ten years ago. There was a radical leftist city councillor in town. And by the way, in Saskatoon, we've got one mayor and 10 councillors. Of them, I would say probably six of the councillors and the mayor are radical leftists. So it's uh, there's a lot of them on our council, which is why we have a lot of bicycle lanes in a city that has five months of winter. But I digress. One councillor in, here in town who is thankfully not on council anymore had once said that, well, we really need to put a, make a ban on billboard advertising along our, our main freeway that circles around the city, conveniently called Circle Drive. And she said that billboards are a distraction. The, the advertising is a distraction. And in the very same speech, this radical leftist moron actually said that yes billboard advertising is a distraction while people are driving through the river valley and around the city and it stops people from seeing the beautiful landscape of our river valley and our parks etc I know you're putting two and two together right now, Canada, because we have the smartest audience in the country. You're saying, okay, so it is okay for drivers to be distracted by Saskatoon's picturesque river valley, but it is not okay for drivers in Saskatoon to be distracted by advertising billboards in Saskatoon's picturesque river valley or other spots of the freeway. Okay. I get it. And this is exactly where I'm going. I'm, I'm thinking with the city of Calgary too. 
oh no, it's it's too distracting to look at at election signs because that's just a, an, an eyesore on uh, on Calgary's public property. But by all means, do check out some of the artwork and statues and the picturesque beauty of Calgary. And there is a lot of that. I love Calgary. So it's uh, it's just, again, it's yet more leftist hypocrisy. But if we put the name climate beside it, oh, well, people are bound to fall in, on, in line because it's, it's climate. Therefore, therefore, it's good. Get rid of those election signs and get rid of those plastic spoons and forks. My goodness, you're killing the planet. Oh. I'm all. In, I'm actually all in favor of common sense Calgary fighting against this because, well, it's called common sense. What a great name! But anyway, Calgary, you need some common sense, and uh, I realize that your mayor has almost record low uh, approval ratings right now, even though she's barely a year into her tenure. But I guess you uh, elections have consequences, and you get what you pay for. All right, so let's go next door to British Columbia. Now, you heard uh, Aaron Gunn and I talk about this in our discussion on Saturday, or on Friday, sorry. And if you haven't heard my discussion with Aaron Gunn yet, I suggest that after this show, you uh, please do download it and give it a listen. It was actually a very good discussion he and I had. So uh, in BC, I'm actually surprised that it, that it went through. MLA Todd Stone, who was a BC Liberal MLA, which uh, the party has apparently not yet changed its name to BC United, but that is on the way. So um, Liberal MLA Todd Stone had proposed to uh, a bill to freeze MLA's pay for next year so they would not get their, their normal annual pay raise, which is indexed to inflation, so they would have gotten, well, I guess 7% raise likely because if it's indexed to inflation. And MLAs in BC are already quite well paid, just like they are everywhere else in Canada. So my suspicion was that seeing as there is a majority NDP government and a healthy majority, that this bill wasn't even going to make it off the order paper. Well, to my surprise, it... And not only did the bill get fast-tracked so they could debate it before breaking for Christmas, it passed unanimously. MLAs actually said, yeah, you know what? BC residents are going through hard times right now. We are with you, BC residents. We're going to freeze our pay because it would just be selfish of us to take a huge pay raise off the backs of BC taxpayers. I was absolutely stunned by it. Grateful as hell. Um, you know, I'm happy for the BC taxpayers. Lewis is one of those. So fantastic move on the, the part of the BC government. And I, I applaud that leadership. I applaud the, the move by the BC government. Again, a common sense move. And I think it's fantastic. So I thought if I'm going to give a shout out to the BC government, then I also need to give a shout out to the government of Nova Scotia because they did the exact same thing. It was a little while back. But they also said that, okay, you know, the cost on Nova Scotians is too high and we need to show some leadership. So again, Premier Houston in Nova Scotia, you're uh, becoming a, I'm becoming a big fan of yours. They actually recalled the legislature, I believe it was in the summer, 
and said, yep, we need to, to freeze MLA pay raises and Nova Scotia is not giving their, their politicians any pay raises next year either. And Alberta during the pandemic, so this actually was a couple of years ago when they said in solidarity with Albertans who are unable to work due to draconian lockdowns with the Alberta, Alberta MLAs actually took a pay cut to show, share a little bit of pain with Albertans. So now I'm just saying, okay, well, we've, uh, that's three provinces. Let's get seven more on board because I really don't want to be paying my MLA here in Saskatchewan another 7% come April 1st. But I have a funny feeling that unless Scott Moe and crew decide to do something drastic, like recall the Saskatchewan legislature, like they did in Nova Scotia, I'm probably going to be saddled with paying all of these incompetent boobs here 7% more. And well, MLAs here in Saskatchewan make about a hundred K a year. So we're going to throw another $500 a month at them just because mm, that hurts. That really hurts. What hurts even more is that the federal government laughs at the idea of freezing MP pay and perks. They, they, they try to tell you, oh no, it's way too difficult for us to freeze our, our pay raises or God forbid, cut their pay. Even though, and well, I actually got to give credit to Maxime Bernier for this. It wasn't during an interview with myself that he had, had suggested this, but he did at one time say that when they even went negotiating equalization, for example, they were able to do it just by having a meeting among themselves and making the decision to to make changes. And as far as a pay package goes, he says, yep, it's just a matter of making a motion, having it accepted and make it binding. Boom, done. But I can tell you right now that the MLA MPs, I should say, who make right now a base salary of $189,000 will be more than happy to line up at the trough and chew up another 7% because their pay raises are also indexed to inflation. So I'm sure that every MP in Ottawa is going to say, oh, my hands are tied. I had absolutely no choice but to add $12,500 to my salary this coming year. Thank you very much, taxpayers. In fact, they probably won't even say thank you very much. They'll probably say F you very much, taxpayers. We're taking that extra 12K so our base salary can be over $200,000 a year for a barking seal in the back benches. How does that make you feel? All right. So let us move on from our, well, provincial government's on the right track. Federal government never on the right track, unfortunately. Let's talk a little bit about Skate Canada for a second. Now, this was a story that just sort of blipped across the radar, and I bet you it's going to get absolutely zero fanfare because Skate Canada has decided that they must join the woke brigade. Maybe a little bit late to the party, but hey, better late than never, right? Skate Canada has announced that the words man and woman will be stricken from their official vocabulary. What does that mean in, the, in English? Well, what that means is that if a biological male and another biological male wish to pair up because one decides that 
he is now a she or a they them no problem no problem at all skate canada recognizes the the new current gender reality so two biological males can absolutely pair up two biological females can absolutely pair up two i guess non-binary people could pair up i'm gonna guess somebody who identifies as a walrus and somebody who identifies as a non-binary can pair up i don't know i mean i'm just throwing that one out there but i just think it's ridiculous so those of you who are old enough to remember a movie called blades of glory which had will ferrell and uh john Hader, the guy who played napoleon dynamite actually paired up and they were the first men's pair figure skating duo well i i guess that can be a reality now because you know gender is fluid so uh i guess maybe justin trudeau would say because it's 2022 so let's just throw away the whole concept of well i guess the pairs are were traditionally a female and a male but yeah we'll just throw that out the window no problem <sighs> i got nothing canada i got nothing um guessing that that means soon that hockey canada will probably have to follow suit and uh i should probably add that skate canada can only apply this new definitions to domestic competitions because the international ice skating federation is still sticking with those archaic traditional definitions of men and women so well at least there's a little common sense somewhere still so uh yeah i'm just waiting for hockey canada to be the the next domino to fall how bad does it have to get before we start to push back canada i uh i don't know the answer to that one all right what i do have an answer to is our federal civil service now when the same federal government decided they had to lock everybody down and brought in draconian mandates and sent all their civil service to go work from home a couple of years ago, I guess these bureaucrats got rather comfortable with the idea. And now the federal government has said, we want you all back in the office because we now have seen statistical proof that you are not as productive working from home. And now they've asked the, the laptop class to go back to the office. So by the end of March, they want federal civil servants back in the office two or three days a week. Now, I don't have the kind of job where I can work from home. That's not an option for me. Uh, myself, my wife, we were all declared essential services. We kept going to work just like normal and risking dying from the deadliest disease ever known to mankind that has a 99.8% survival rate. And what do you know? We both survived. And now the federal civil service is being asked to do the exact same thing. Go out and face those demons uh, out in the, the open air. Go, go risk your lives and, uh, for a disease that's, well, already run its course. But their union is absolutely livid because the federal government is 
putting their staff at risk of what exactly? Now, are they going to start start complaining that maybe they're going to get RSV? Maybe they're going to have to wear masks when they go back to work? Don't laugh. The government of Quebec has already stated, hey, uh, maybe we should be wearing masks or, or if you don't feel well, don't go visit family at Christmas. <laughs> Ontario, the chief public health officer suggesting, well, maybe they should wear masks there because these respiratory infections are going up. Alberta schools are demanding mask mandates be brought in. So, uh, yeah, you know, that's just bubbling under the surface. But I digress. The whole working from home idea, I understand from the employee perspective that there, there's some serious lifestyle and uh, monetary benefits to be had because they're, you know, you're saving on, well, buying, you know, dress attire for the office, you're saving on a commute, you're saving on going out for the odd lunch, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, it all adds up. I mean, you're not paying childcare some of the times because you're able to stay home. But I mean, that also takes away from your ability to do your job. As we are seeing anybody apply for a passport lately, I mean, the government is failing, well, throughout the entire bureaucracy because there's just too damn many of them. They trip over each other. But the working from home thing, well, it's got to be a part of it. It's got to be a factor in there. So I'm actually not opposed to having the people that I, as a taxpayer, pay a really good salary and benefit package to, to get their asses back into the office, especially when the government has, is able to prove that they're not as productive working from home. Now, as I said, I've never worked from home. I do have family that does, and they they had sort of that hybrid model that the government is proposing their employees now adopt before the the pandemic hit, and then they just switched to to fully working from home. And the people in my family that do it actually are capable of getting a day's work done at home. I've never had an office job, but. I'm not convinced that I would be so dedicated, but I mean, for anybody that does do it and actually can be just as productive at home as they could have been in the office, good for you. But I also get the rationale that the federal government is putting on their employees saying that if you can get everybody in the same room, especially working on a project together, you do get that energy of people being together, able to brainstorm ideas, innovate, etc. So I'm I'm actually not opposed to this idea of the government bringing people back to work. When we're paying these people to, well, process passport applications for one thing and deliver services to Canadians that they need. So yeah, get your asses back to work. It's actually honestly that simple to me. All right, so now let's move on to the last topic for today, the one that, well, I really love talking about because it's something that I've been a passionate advocate in for, well, over 20 years. That's our healthcare system, our bloated, inefficient, costly, very, very broken healthcare system. Justin Trudeau is finally set to meet with the premiers 
quote, in the new year. Um, we all want to believe that means sometime in January. On uh, Justin Trudeau time, that could mean June. But he's going to have to do it sooner than later. And uh, <laughs> not that I'm even taking this this seriously, but Jagmeet Singh did say that, hey, you know what, we, uh, we could pull our support for the confidence and supply agreement if we if Justin Trudeau doesn't do something to fix health care. To which I said, <laughs> oh, that, that's almost as funny as him saying, when I'm prime minister, when he was in the House of Commons. <laughs> oh. Yeah, again, like Aaron Gunn and I, it says, not exactly a stand-up routine I'd pay to watch, but uh, oh, Mr. Singh is a funny, funny man. Uh, he won't pull his support for the Trudeau government over the healthcare thing, unless he sees some kind of political advantage to him doing so. And there is no political advantage for him. His party is broke and nobody wants to vote for him. It's, if you look at the polling, they're polling their usual 17 to 18%. So if Jagmeet Singh pulls the plug on this government, he will get the same 20 odd seats that he has now and he won't be prime minister. In fact, he might even get less than the 20-odd seats he has right now, and he'll just be, well, the same laughingstock he is now, but he just will, won't be in the news cycle quite as much because he, well, there'll be nothing for him to sell his soul to gain. So, anyway, Jean-Yves Duclos has been saying for weeks that no, well, Justin Trudeau doesn't need to meet with the premiers. I mean, the health ministers, we, we actually have all come to agreement and the premiers are being belligerent. Well, the premiers are saying they want money for health care. They want the government, the federal government to kick in some more money. But there's some premiers that just don't want any strings attached. And that's been Quebec's mantra for any kind of federal funding. And they always... Well, I shouldn't say always, but they typically get to have their way. Hello, a child care deal. They just get money thrown at them with no strings attached. And in the case of Jean Charest, when he was premier of Quebec, utilized a, a government handout to implement a tax cut in Quebec. So I guess I can kind of get why the federal government would be a little frustrated with that. But here's the thing. Even Justin Trudeau, and I have to give him credit for this, even Justin Trudeau, as inept, as dumb, as much of a buffoon as he is, even Justin Trudeau had to admit that simply throwing more money at healthcare may not fix the problem. And I actually had to say, yes, I've been saying this literally for 24 years that more money is not necessarily the solution. The solution is on the delivery end. And that is where the provinces come in. And that, Mr. Trudeau, you incompetent boob, is why premiers want to meet directly with you. Because there's no need to change the Canada Health Act at all. All that needs to happen is that 
you need to, I guess, provide the stable funding. And at this point, the federal government doesn't kick in really a big piece of the pie anyway. I know Jean-Yves Duclos says, oh, if you do the math right, it's 33%. We've done the math. It's about 26%, I believe it is, or 28 maybe, that the federal government currently funds for health care. And that's actually up. It used to be 17% back in the late 90s. So the funding actually did increase through with the Harper government, but also even with Paul Martin's government a little bit. So... Anyway, that being what it is, the federal government doesn't really kick in a lot of the money when it comes to healthcare spending. You heard me say before on this show, they want to give us 28 cents on the dollar. Maybe we'll just do healthcare our own way and they can shove their 28 cents up there. <clears throat> and I still believe that actually. It's a delivery model that is completely archaic and is not repeated anywhere in the industrialized world. Tony, quit lying. Cuba and North Korea have completely government-run healthcare systems. Yes, that's true. Canada is definitely on par with Cuba and North Korea for our healthcare systems. Let me say that again. Canada is on par with Cuba and North Korea in terms of our healthcare delivery model. Well, that's good company for a G7 country now, isn't it? It's been shown that as far as spending to outcomes are concerned, Canada is the second worst in outcomes, second only to the United States, who get worse outcomes for the amount of money that government spends on health care. Side note, the United States Veterans Administration, the VA hospitals, are modeled after the Canadian health care system. Any of our American listeners out there, I'm sure you all have a veteran in the family or know, know somebody who's a veteran attempting to deal with the VA for health care. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So why don't we, instead of just continuing to throw more money down this black hole called our healthcare system, why don't we actually try to innovate our delivery models and let the money follow the patient to where the care is instead of here's, here's what we do right now with our healthcare system. Right now we throw a big bucket of money into the, into an office and we tell them, use it, spend it all by the end of the year, or we won't give you as much. Well, there's absolutely no incentive to be efficient and save money because they want to make certain they use it all so that they'll get the same amount next year. Well, what if we instead just did something simple and this has been done already, determine with an actuary the actual cost of healthcare services. We've done this because when I've gone in for services in my younger years, I actually asked the doctors while, while, while visiting, getting procedures done, what does this cost? What what do you bill? And some of them were actually pretty open about it. Others just told me it's none of my business. Fine. But if the government already determines what the cost of a service is and what they're paying the doctor, then why can't they apply that to the whole system? Now, for those of you who don't live in Saskatchewan, which is probably 90% of our listeners, 99% of our listeners, 
we've got a good model for that here with our own vehicle insurance system. Because right now, if you crash your car, for example, you take it in for diagnostics to somebody who is contracted to the government-owned insurance company. They take a look, see what's wrong, and then they say, okay, you go where to whatever government accredited service provider you wish and you'll pay them a deductible unless you've bought extra insurance which will to waive said deductible and then the government insurance company will take care of the bill where you go and that's really a very simplistic breakdown of what we can do with our healthcare system take your healthcare card if you're in ontario it's your ohip card and Take that to the facility of your choice, use that card, and the government gets billed for the service. Instead of this system right now where, oh, well, your doctor only has admitting privileges at such and such hospital, so you have to go there. What a funny system it would be if these providers, be they nonprofits, be they for-profits, be they government facilities, all had to compete for those government health care dollars and said, hey, Come here because we'll take better care of you than the other ones would. Can you imagine what a little competition might do to improve the system? Well, I can imagine it because I do see it in other sectors of our economy. And it can work because it works in Europe. It works in Sweden, that big model of democratic socialism that people rail about. They actually have a majority of their healthcare system is provided by private for profit caregivers. I know Jagmeet Singh has got to be just fuming right now because he hates that word profit. And that's actually why I emphasize it just for you, Mr. Singh. Lots of love. But funding is not the issue. And if even someone as dumb as Justin Trudeau can finally get the light bulb turned on that more money isn't necessarily the answer then maybe there's hope that 13 other morons in the provinces and territories can also get their heads around that idea and actually allow people within the sector to innovate. Talk to nurses, talk to doctors. They'll actually tell you how to improve the system. They'll tell you this. It's not just a matter of more money. They'll say more resources, yes, but that doesn't always necessarily mean money. That sometimes means things like equipment, staff, not just a big pool of taxpayer money. Now, don't hold your breath, Canada. I don't expect this to happen, well, anytime soon. I'd love to see it happen in my lifetime because I know in 20 years or so, I'm probably going to start using more healthcare services. So I'd really love it if there was some available at that time. But don't hold your breath for change, Canada. But it does have to happen. We can't keep spending, well, currently in Saskatchewan, 42% of our provincial budget on health care and still not be able to deliver outcomes. I mean, Jagmeet Singh keeps just saying, oh, they need to invest, quote unquote, more money. Well, how much is enough? They never, ever can give you a figure for how much is enough. It's just, we need more. Well, if you know we need more, that maybe you should know how much instead of just saying, no, no, just keep filling up that bucket. The one, you know, the one with the big hole in the bottom where the money just keeps dropping out as we pour more in. 
that model is dead. That model is dead like the healthcare system that it's attempting to fund. And we've got to make some changes. We've got children's hospitals overflowing. We've, we're flying kids to the States so they can get care. We've got people falling through the cracks everywhere. You've got waiting lists as long as 64 weeks for care in, in PEI. You've got an average of 27 weeks across the country. That's completely unacceptable in a G7 country. And it's up to our provincial governments to make those changes. And I don't know that having a meeting with Justin Trudeau is actually going to make any of those changes. It's going to take one province to grow a set of cojones and just say, you know what, we're tired of this garbage system and we're going to fix it ourselves. And I really wish they would do that here in Saskatchewan. We're the birthplace of socialized medicine. We should also be the place that fixes it. All right, Canada, I'm going to wrap it up there. I do want to thank you so much for joining me. Uh, again, no show next Sunday because it will be Christmas Day. Look forward to a year in review show from Lewis and myself in a couple weeks' time. And you may end up hearing a rant in between this show and that one. In the meantime, Merry Christmas, Canada. And a Happy New Year to yourselves and your families. And yes, I'm happy to say Merry Christmas, and I'll continue to do so. Like the majority of Canadians have actually suggested, they prefer to do as well. So Merry Christmas from Tony in Saskatchewan and my beautiful wife and small army of cats, and we will talk to you again soon. and Tony.